0: Alright, The Once and Future Thing, Part 1, Weird Western Tales. It's a bit of a mouthful. That title, of course, is a reference to uh, The Once and Future King, which was a a massive novel about uh, the life and death uh, of King Arthur that I had to read back in high school. A lot of people kind of thought it was a weird title and probably didn't get that reference. Now, since the teaser here shows what is unequivocally the Batman Beyond future, before Chrono starts futzing with time, uh, and I'll get it more into this in the commentary for part two, where I talk about um, all the sort of the ins and outs of the time travel and how it affects the future, since that's where most of the effects are seen, but I'll mention it here. Since we see the Batman Beyond future intact at the beginning of this episode before Chrono starts futzing with time, that pretty clearly states that the Batman beyond future is the future since we just open here in the future uh, just a, a cold open and there's no explanation and it's just you know treated completely normally we can pretty much assume that this is just you know we're seeing the future and then we go back and we see the present and there's no uh, there's no explanation needed it's the future so some people who uh, who don't like to believe that Batman beyond is the future uh, kind of just have to deal with it So here we get uh, Peter McNichol as Kronos, uh, first uh, first came to my attention way back when I was a little kid, and I saw Ghostbusters 2, and uh, he was a villain's sort of sniveling lackey in that, uh, in that movie, and apparently he was also on Ally McBeal, and apparently he was also on Numbers, and apparently he's now on 24, although since I... Did not watch, nor do I presently watch any of those shows. I would not be the person to ask about that. But he is uh, perfect for Kronos as he is portrayed in this uh, in this episode. Starts off sort of uh, subservient and, and whipped, and gradually becomes demented uh, by the end of part two. And he he pulls it off beautifully. Apparently, he was quite a, a big comics fan when he when he came in to record the episode. Dwayne McDuffie was bowled over by how much he knew about the character and about. Uh, dc comics in general so here we see that shayara has rejoined the league uh since the last episode she took them up on their offer rather quickly we also get the first appearance of her uh her quote-unquote new costume even though it's really nothing more than a tracksuit i kind of like the tracksuit i like the gold tracksuit that she uh she adopts uh after the balance better but uh, I like the idea of the tracksuit. It it works in theory because uh when you think about it it's kind of halfway between a superhero costume and the civilian attire she was wearing in Wake the Dead. And so it's kind of shows that she's she's she's, you know, wearing clothes that are not, you know, normal civilian clothes like the the jeans and white tank top she was wearing in uh and wake the dead. Yet she's still not all the way back to wearing a superhero costume. And over the course of the two seasons, she starts to introduce her Hawk Girl colors back into it—the gold—and uh, so that shows she's getting a bit closer to being a superhero. But she never quite gets back all the way there, because of course she she never quite reclaims the Hawk Girl mantle. That's that's part of her life is over now. And so I like what it says about her as a character, if nothing else. So now I'm going to go back and talk about some of the stuff I just talked over. Uh, I like Batman just chilling in the Watchtower uh, cafeteria or whatever you want to call it and talking with Green Lantern. Um, it's kind of a weird thing and it's it took a lot of flack because uh, Batman has always been, you know, he's got his, you know, I'm a part-timer routine and, you know, he, he only has time for absolutely crucial league business and he's got to always saying, you know, I've got to get back to Gotham unless it's an emergency and I can't help with this or that. But uh, here he is just hanging out in the Watchtower and and, uh, and talking with Green Lantern. Now, I mean, he's got to eat, obviously, and if he just finished with a mission, you know, it makes more sense for him to eat there rather than, you know, get takeout back in Gotham or whatever. But I like the idea that he's become comfortable enough in his role as a Justice League member that he can just hang out, and also that he's become comfortable enough with his friends, the other founding members, that he can just sit and talk with them about whatever. Um and John's right, they do always seem to talk about his love life. Going all the way back to Starcrossed, uh, when Batman was giving him advice, uh, Batman's famous little, uh, you know, women uh, spiel that he gave to him there, they do always end up have, seeming to talk about uh, John Stewart's love life. And They keep doing it, all the way up to uh, Shadow of the Hawk. And uh, when Kronos was um, stealing Batman's utility belt and he was checking it off the list of items, presumably other items that he had already stolen, one of the items on there was M's Dress, capital M apostrophe S Dress. Now, that could mean anything, but the first thing that occurred to me and to a few other people on the internet, given that Kronos' last name is Clinton, is that perhaps uh, M's dress refers to Monica's dresses in Monica Lewinsky. And if you don't know who that is, if future generations are listening to this, God forbid, and don't know who Monica Lewinsky is, look it up. That was the only thing that occurred to me. Dwayne McDuffie's, uh, sense of humor is on display here. Uh, full tilt. Just the funny little one-liners. I, I love all the stuff. The little thing with Wonder Woman saying these are the fattest, slowest bullets I've ever seen, and all the stuff about you know John complaining about how the clothes smell and so on like that. Dwayne McDuffie always seemed to introduce a lot of uh, a lot of humor into his scripts that uh, even the serious ones that uh, that really struck a good tone. I felt. Again, we're getting into some of the uh, the Coco animation here that I feel is uh, is not nearly as strong as the DR movie animation. Compare the stuff in this episode to the stuff in Part Two, and true to be fair, Part Two has got a lot more huge stuff going on that uh, that lends itself to spectacular animation. But still, compare uh, just the shading and the framing in in, in an episode like this to uh, to Part Two, and it's just it's just night and day in my opinion. One would think having a black cowboy or, or or whatever hanging out with white cowboys back then would have seemed a little strange, but whatever. I guess we can't really get into that. I also like that Batman is the first to dive into the time tunnel after Kronos. Um, Batman being completely unafraid, and even though time travel, of course he has no way of knowing it's a time tunnel, but... Portals are really far less his milieu than uh, than Wonder Woman's or Green Lanterns, and yet completely fearless, uh willing to tackle any problem, just jumps right in. And I like that they loosened up a little bit and that they started to give let Batman tag along on sort of interplanetary missions and time travel missions a bit more. Uh they didn't they didn't tend to do that all the way back in season one. They kept him earthbound because they felt that it put taking him that much out of his element was just wrong. But I like that they loosened up about that because well, obviously you couldn't have done this episode without him, because I have the fun of seeing him interact with Terry in part two, but still. So here we get Batlash. Um to give you a bit of background information about Batlash, uh debuted in Showcase number seventy six in nineteen sixty-eight. Uh one of the few one of a few uh Western characters that DC was pushing at the time, several others of which uh, also appear in this episode. Um, he was kind of unique at the time. Uh, he was co-created by Sergio Aragones, uh, probably much better known as the, uh, creator of Gru the Wanderer. Uh, and he was kind of unique for a Western hero at the time because although he was kind of reckless and, and, uh, and arrogant and so on, like a lot of Western heroes, he was also sort of, he was, uh, very peaceful. He, he loathed violence. Uh, he would... Preferred to just be around uh, nature, good music, good food, women, and, yes, flowers. Uh, He used to always have a flower in his hat. Here he's got it on his vest, but the idea is the same. Uh, So kind of a unique Western character at the time. uh, His series was unique also for the sense of humor it had, which was quite unlike uh, other things, such as, say, Jonah Hex uh, being published at the time, which was a lot more grim and gritty before that term was, was popular, of course. Outlash here is voiced by Ben Browder, who I myself am not familiar with, but uh, will certainly be familiar to a lot of other sci-fi fans uh, from both firescape and uh, Stargate SG-1. So we're seeing Kronos here again in jail. Kronos uh, is, is an Atom villain, actually. Uh, debuted in the Atom No. 3 way back in 1962, and is in fact considered by a lot of people to be the arch-nemesis of the Atom. Originally, he was just a thief who trained himself to have an incredible sense of timing. Uh, In this sense, he's really kind of similar to the DCAU depiction of the Clock King, where he didn't actually have time travel powers, at least at first, but just had an incredible sense of timing and became obsessed with time and would use this this, uh, skill of his to commit very precise burglaries. Um, He eventually made a deal with the demon Neron, where he traded his soul, as people are wont to do when they deal with Neron, for the ability to actually travel through time. But Neron neglected to fill him in on the full extent of the deal, as is often the case when you make a deal with the devil. And he found that each time he traveled through the time stream, his aging accelerated. Eventually he began to age to the extent that he basically just faded away. But uh, Kronos has made several appearances since then under the pretense that uh, supposedly the Kronos you see each time after his quote-unquote death is a Kronos that has traveled traveled to our time from just before his death. So that's how he can continue to appear uh, even though he's theoretically died. And his later appearances, he's taken on a bit of a morose uh, attitude given the fact that he knows that when his adventures in our time are over, he's basically going back to die. I'll talk a bit, a bit, more, chrono, a, a bit more about Kronos in Part 2, since he's really only a, a secondary character in this episode. I love uh, all of Batlash's humor. I'm not quite sure I understand when they introduce Batlash, When when John is introducing Batlash to the others, he hesitates. When he's introducing Batman, he says, this is Diana, and uh, and Batman has to say, Bruce. Is John Stewart hesitant to call him Batman, since this guy's already introduced himself as Bat-something? Or, I don't know, because John knows Bruce's secret identity, obviously, going all the way back to Starcross. I never quite got that beat, um, but whatever, it couldn't possibly matter less. So we're going to get here uh, the introduction to... A few more Western heroes. I'll talk about the, uh, oh, Batman's little Clint Eastwood moment here. Interestingly, the animation here gives Batman blue eyes, which he had uh, going back to the new Batman adventures. So that's technically correct. But in part two, uh, his eyes are colored as being, are a darker color, or brown or black, which is incorrect. So you, you think the, the animation studios would have gotten together on that? But I guess not. So here we have the introduction of Jonah Hex, El Diablo, and Powwow Smith. Uh, even though Powwow Smith is loath to be called that in this version, uh, El Diablo debuted in All Star Western, Volume Two, Number Two, back in 1970. Uh, his real real name is Lazarus Lane. Uh, I wonder if any writer has ever tried to tie him in as an ancestor of Lois Lane. Wouldn't be surprised. Uh, his story goes that he was a bank teller who was nearly killed by thieves, and then was later struck by lightning, and if you think you've ever had a bad day, that's, you know, that certainly tops any bad day you've ever had. Uh, he was revived by a Native American shaman, and decided to uh, call himself El Diablo, uh, in English the devil, obviously, and fight against criminals. People need very little prodding to fight against criminals in comics, so when you get robbed by bank tellers and then struck by lightning, it's certainly a better motivation than most. Uh, Powwow Smith uh, debuted in Detective Comics number 151, if you can believe it, he debuted in Detective Comics, all the way back in 1949. Uh, He preferred to be addressed by his real name, which, if I can pronounce it right, is Oihisha, or something to that effect. Uh, But the townspeople at the time, this of course... The series, of course, being published in the 1940s would seem somewhat uh, racist today, even though it was supposed to take place in a more racist time. Nonetheless, uh, the town's folk uh, referred to him constantly as Powwow Smith, and he eventually uh, decided to go by that, just uh, to simplify things, I guess. Um, interestingly, uh, his series originally took place in the modern West, which is to say that the original stories that were published in 1949, originally supposed to take place in 1949 but later stories that were told about the character were set in the 19th century uh it was retconned in order to make sense of this that the old west character the one that in the from the later adventures that uh that fought crime in the 19 in, in the 19th century was actually the ancestor of the modern one even though the modern character actually debuted first in 1949 if you follow me only in comics Um, interestingly, the villain in this episode, uh, Tobias Manning, is actually a Superman villain in the comics, although, uh, they sort of changed him around a bit here. In the comics, uh, he's a villain by the name of Terra Man. Uh, his real name is Toby Manning, and he first appeared in Superman Volume 1, Number 249, in March 1972, uh, in his pre-crisis version. Which is kind of the version they went with here, perhaps not surprisingly. Uh, Terra Man uh, used futuristic weapons modeled after those used in the American Old West. Uh, And he also rode a a winged horse, which they gave him later on in this episode as a nod to the comic version. He actually got all this equipment from uh, an alien that raised him from childhood after his uh, human father was killed by the alien. Uh, This alien taught him how to use these weapons... And uh, after Manning grew to adulthood and learned everything he could from the alien, he killed him, took the weapons, and returned to Earth to become a supervillain. Post-crisis, he, they changed him around a bit. He was just a corporate businessman uh, that used his weapons to try to safeguard the environment, if you can believe it. Uh, I guess they thought perhaps that was a better-suited better, better suited a, a villain by the name of Terra Man. And he was recently killed in the weekly series 52 by Black Adam. He was literally ripped apart, ripped in half. Here, Jonah Hex, who I'll we'll talk about in a second, makes a reference to uh, realizing that Bruce and the others are time travelers, and his explanation by way of this is, is saying that he's led an interesting life. Uh, this is a nod by Dwayne McDuffie to the short-lived series simply titled Hex, where Jonah Hex fought uh, well, fought crime to the extent that Jonah Hex ever fights crime, but but was a gunslinger in the future, in sort of a science fiction setting, as opposed to be called... Being called Jonah Hex, this series was simply called Hex. And it wasn't very well received, didn't last very long, but it gave Dwayne McDuffie a, a fun gag for this episode to make Jonah Hex a, a little bit ahead of everything else. The uh, the ro- the uh, robotic uh, pterodactyls there actually used the original sound effect from Johnny Quest uh, that had little dinosaur screeches. Uh, Bruce Timm had the sound effects guys dig up that exact sound and use it here for fun, but... He was quite miffed when none of the fans noticed. This uh, shootout here at the ranch, the the showdown here at the ranch, uh, was boarded primarily by uh, Kevin Altieri, who directed the Batman the Animated Series episode, Showdown, that featured Jonah Hex. Uh, Kevin Altieri, as evidenced by that episode, is a big Western fan and and a big Jonah Hex fan, and uh, when Bruce Tim found that they were one storyboard artist short for this episode, he called up Kevin Altieri to see if he wanted to do it, and he came in and did much of this sequence. Apparently, according to Bruce Tim, uh, the big tip-off that Kevin Altieri was involved is the exploding outhouse that we see in a, a minute. Uh, I don't think I want to know the story behind that if there is one, but apparently that uh, that just screams Kevin Altieri to him. I love this little bit where he takes back the money. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny. So, uh, Jonah Hex is the most easily the most recognizable of all the Western characters in this episode. Uh, he debuted in All-Star Western number 10, the February-slash-March issue uh, from 1971. Presumably it was bi-monthly at the time. Um... He uh, he was a Confederate soldier. His story goes that he was a Confederate soldier uh, that was raised primarily by Apache Indians. After his father uh, kicked him out, uh, he saved the life of the Apache chief and they brought him into the tribe. But he was betrayed by one of the other tribesmen uh, because they both loved the same woman. And uh, he joined the Confederate army. And when it when the Confederates obviously lost, for those of you who don't know your American history as well as you should. Uh, decided to become a bounty hunter. He got the horrible scars on his face when um, he was he was burned by uh, soldiers that captured him, and it, he he had uh, fire was applied to the side of his face and sort of melted the side of his face. So that's how he got those scars. The uh, Jonah Hex we see in this episode is noticeably younger than. Uh, the version we saw in showdown which who had gray hair so presumably uh the date these this sequences is is set at is uh several years or even decades earlier than the date we saw in showdown although if there isn't enough time between the date when this is set and the date when showdown is set to account for how much jonah hex has aged we can always just assume that he had some more adventures in the future in there that uh so he's, he would age more in, in 30 years if he has you know 20 years worth of adventures in the future than he would if he just lived out those, those years normally. That's a great bit here where they all take out his guns at the same time. And there's his winged horse from the comics. Jonah Hex is voiced here by Adam Baldwin. Uh, no relation to Alec Baldwin or any other of the Baldwin brothers. That's a common mistake that people make. He was voiced in Showdown by William McKinney. Uh, but, uh, the cast Adam Baldwin here, Adam Baldwin is, uh, best known to modern audiences from, uh, the Joss Whedon series Firefly and the movie version of that, uh, Serenity. Bruce Timm being a big Joss Whedon fan, it's no surprise that he put Adam Baldwin in here, and since that series was sort of a sci-fi western to begin with, it's, uh, doubly appropriate. The gag here when, um, Batlash and, and Jonah are talking about ray guns is funny because the actors that play both characters right here uh, made their names in science fiction shows, although Firefly didn't have any ray guns, but nonetheless, that's why the joke is funny. So we're about to go into the big reveal here, the Batman Beyond Future. People had theorized that perhaps Warhawk had some relation to Shaira, uh, although the fact that he such, has such light skin color didn't lead many to believe that he was uh, her son by John Stewart, which is obviously what we find out here. Uh, still, a few people had thought that it might be the case, uh, but nobody really expected they would ever go there, so when Warhawk delivers his line here, Dad, it just uh, it hit the internet internet like a Mack truck, and uh, boy, the talkback thread for this episode reached unprecedented length. And a lot of people didn't notice, at the just because the, it goes by so quickly here, and, and perhaps some people weren't watching it on very large TVs, the uh, the way the Jokers had been modified with these robotic enhancements and so on, uh, and so some people wondered why Bonk was alive again from Return of the Joker and all that, and I'll get into that in the, in the next part, but some people... Didn't realize yet the time had been fus-with to the extent that it was. Thanks for listening.